Section 2 British Enmity Against Islam People who read the British spies' confessions given in the first section will have an idea of what the British think about Muslims throughout the world. The following is an account of how British spies have applied the orders they received from the Ministry of the Commonwealth on the world's Muslims and what activities the missionaries have been carrying on. The British are a conceited and arrogant people. The high value which they attach to themselves and to their country leaves its place to a symmetrical detestation when it comes to other people and their countries. According to the British, there are three groups of people on the earth. The first group are the British, who are self-portrayed as the most developed beings Allah has ever created in the human form. The second group are the white-coloured Europeans and Americans. These people may also be worthy of respect, as they so generously admit. The third group are the people who have not had the luck of being born in either of the first two groups. They are the sort of creatures between human beings and animals. They are not worthy of respect at all, nor do they deserve such things as freedom, independence or a country. They have been created for living under others' domination, especially that of the British. Holding such a prejudice about other people, the British never live among the inhabitants of their colonies. Throughout their colonies there are clubs, casinos, restaurants, baths and even stores that are open only to British people. Native people cannot enter these places. French writer Marcel Pernaud, who is famous for his travels to India in the early 20th century, gives the following account in his Notes on My Travel to India. I made an appointment with an Indian scholar who was widely known in Europe, so much so that he had been granted professorship by some universities. We decided to meet in a British club in India. When the Indian arrived, the British did not let him in ignoring his fame. It was only after I found out what was happening and insisted that I was able to see the Indian in the club. The British have treated other people with such cruelty as could not be inflicted on animals. Their biggest colony is India, where they perpetrated savage, sadistic cruelties for years. In the city of Amritsar, a group of Hindus who had come together for a religious rite did not pay due respect to a British woman missionary. The missionary complained to the British General Dyer. Upon this, the General ordered his soldiers to open fire on the people performing their rite. 700 people were killed in 10 minutes. More than a 1,000 were wounded. Unsatisfied with this, the general forced the people to walk on their hands and feet like animals for three days. A complaint was filed and reported to London, whereupon the government issued an order for an investigation. When the inspector sent forth to India for the investigation, asked the general for what reason he had ordered his soldiers to open fire on defence's people, the general answered, I am the commander here. I make the decisions about the military executions here. I ordered so because I considered it right. When the inspector asked what was the reason for his ordering the people to crawl face downwards, the general answered, 
Some Indians crawl face downwards before their gods. I wanted them to know that a British woman is as sacred as a Hindu god, and therefore they have to crawl in front of her too, let alone insulting her. And when the inspector reminded him that the people would have to go out for shopping and other things, the general's answer was, If these people were human beings, they would not crawl on their faces in the streets. They live in adjacent houses with flat roofs. They would walk on their roofs like human beings. These statements of the generals were publicised by the British press. The general was declared a hero. Dyer, Reginald Edward Harry, was born in 1864-1281 and died in London in 1927-1346. The world's histories mention him as the famous British general who quelled the riots against the British oppression in Amritsar City by turning the city into a lake of blood on April 13, 1919. When large mass demonstrations against the British were staged all over India, he was discharged from office and retired. However, the British House of Lords decided that his deeds deserve lord and praise, and he must therefore be supported. This fact makes it quite clear how British lords and counts look on other peoples. The British apply a different administrative system in their colonies with white and originally European people than the one by which they colonise countries whose people are coloured and Aboriginal. The first group are privileged, that is, they are partly autonomous. The second group moan with the pains of cruelty. The second group of their colonies, which they call dominions, have self-governing states in their internal affairs while they are under British domination in their external matters. Examples of these colonies are Canada, Australia, New Zealand and so on. Matters concerning the colonies have been assigned to two ministries. They are the Ministry of the Commonwealth and the Ministry of India. The Ministry of the Commonwealth is presided over by Secretary of State for the Colonial Department. This secretary, or minister, has two councillors and four assistants. One of the councillors is chosen from among the House of Commons. The other councillor and the assistants are in office permanently. Change of power will not cause them to lose their office. One of the four assistants are in charge of matters concerning Canada, Australia and some islands. Another one is responsible for Southern Africa. The third one governs Eastern and Western Africa, and the last one has been assigned to India. Based on a fetid foundation, a mixture of hostility against Islam, despotism, trickery and turpitude, the British Empire formally called itself a state on which the sun never sets. Such countries as Canada, South Africa, Fiji, the Pacific Islands, Papua, Tonga, Australia, the British Balochistan, Burma, Aden, Somali, Borneo, Brunei, Sarawak, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Hong Kong, a part of China, Cyprus, Malta, and in 1882-1300, Egypt, Sudan, Niger, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Zimbabwe, 
Zambia, Malawi, Bahamas, Grenada, Guyana, Guyana, Botswana, Gambia, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Tanzania and Singapore were brought under the British sway. These countries of the world lost their religions, languages, customs and traditions. In addition, their sources and resources were exploited by the British. At the end of their invasions in the 19th century, the empire took possession of approximately one-fourth of the Earth's surface, colonizing more than one-fourth of the Earth's population. India was the most significant, the most outstanding of the British colonies. It was India's tremendous population of over 300 million, well over 1,300,000,000 as of today, and its inexhaustible natural wealth that earned the British their universal domination. In the First World War alone, Britain utilised 1.5 million of India's population as fighting soldiers, and 1 billion rupees of its treasury as ready money. They used most of these assets in smashing the Ottoman Empire. In peacetime as well, it was India that helped Britain's stupendous industries to survive and sustain the British economy and finance. There were two reasons for India's being an incomparably important colony. First, India was a country where Islam, which the British considered to be the greatest hindrance to their exploiting the whole world, was widespread, and Muslims were in the ascendant in this country. Second, India's natural riches. In order to keep India under their domination, the British mounted offensives on all the Muslim countries that had transport links with India, sowed seeds of mischief and instigation, set brothers against one another, took these countries under their domination and transported all their natural riches and national wealth to their own country. The perfidious character inherent in the nature of the British policy proves itself in that they meticulously followed the movements in the Ottoman Empire, set the Ottomans on a war with the Russians by using all sorts of political stratagems, and thus put them in a position wherefore it would be impossible for them to offer any help to India. The European pioneers of India are the Portuguese. Landing in the port city named Calcutta in India's coastal Malabar region in 1498-904, the Portuguese engaged in trade and took possession of India's trade business, only to lose it to the Dutch sometime later. Those who snatched India's trade from the Dutch were the French. It was not long after that, however, that these people confronted with the British. As is related in the book, as Saurat ul India, which means the Indian Revolution, written by Alama Muhammad Fadl Haq Khaya Abadi, one of India's great Islamic scholars, and in its commentary entitled Al Yawakit ul Mihriya, it was in the year 1600, 1008, when the British first managed to take Akbar Shah's permission to open trade centres in Calcutta, India. The same year, Queen Elizabeth I sanctioned the regulations for the East India Company. In accordance with these regulations, the company was granted permission to recruit soldiers in Britain, to arm them for its own use, to establish a fleet of its own, and to organise military and commercial expeditions to India. 
They bought land in Calcutta in the time of Shah Alam I, died in 1712-1124. They brought soldiers with the pretext of protecting their land. Akbar Shah was a corrupt person in matters of belief. He held all religions equal. In fact, he convened scholars from various religions and attempted to establish a common universal religion, a mixture of all religions. Made an official announcement of this new religion, which he named Dini Ilahi, Divine Religion, in 1582-990. From that time up until his death, respect for Islamic scholars continuously decreased all over India, especially in the palace. People who tended towards Akbar Shah's religion were esteemed highly. It was during those days when the British entered India. In return for their successful medical treatment of Sultan Farooqi Shah in 1714-1126, they were awarded the privilege of buying land anywhere they liked throughout India. After Shah Alam II mounted the throne 1760-1174, they extended their domination from Bengal to central India and Rajasthan. They aroused mischief and tumults everywhere in India. In 1803-1218, the British eventually managed to take Shah Alam II completely under their authority. The orders which they announced from Delhi were now being issued in the name of the Shah. It did not take them long to equalize the powers of the British Governor-General with those of Shah Alam II. They deleted the names of the Muslim Indian emperors from the Indian monetary coins. In 1837-1253, Bahadir Shah II became the emperor. He could not stand the British oppressions long and, encouraged by the army and the people, commenced a great insurrection against the British in 1857-1274. Thus, he managed to have money coined bearing his name and to have the kutwa, commonly given at the time of Friday prayers, given with his name mentioned in it. Yet the British reaction to this was extremely vehement and cruel. Entering Delhi, the British soldiers made havoc of the city, ransacked houses and shops, and pillaged whatever they found in the name of property and money. They put all Muslims to the sword, regardless of whether they were young or old, male or female, adults or infants. It was such a massive destruction that the people could not even find any water to drink. One of the commanders of Mahadir Shah II, a general named Bakht Khan, persuaded the Sultan to withdraw his army. However, another commander named Mirza Ilahi Baksh, in an effort to ingratiate himself with the British, misled Mahadir Shah, saying that if he left his army and surrendered, he would be able to convince the British that he was innocent and had been forced to preside over the insurrection and thus would be forgiven by the British. So, Bahadir Shah left the main body of his retreating army and took asylum in Humayun Shah's shrine, 10 kilometers from a place called Khala Muala within Delhi. A traitor named Rajab Ali betrayed the emperor to a British priest named Hudson, who was notorious for immoral and maladroit acts, serving as an intelligence officer in the British army. This man, in his turn, reported the situation to General Wilson. 
the then army commander, and asked for his help to arrest the emperor. When Wilson answered that he did not have any mercenaries to lend him, Hudson suggested that he could do this job with a few men, advising that the emperor must be given the guarantee that he and his family would not be harmed if he surrendered. At first, Wilson refused this suggestion, but after a while he agreed. Upon this, Hudson, taking 90 men with him, went to Humayun Shah's shrine and assured the emperor that no harm would be inflicted on him, his sons and wife. Falling for the priest's promise, Bahadur Shah surrendered. The emperor had two sons and a grandson who had not surrendered yet, so Hudson set about to arrest them. Yet they had so many guards that it was impossible to arrest them. Therefore, he took General Wilson's permission to give them the guarantee that they would not be harmed if they surrendered. Sending various messengers to the emperor's two sons and grandson, Hudson, the villain, assured them that they would not be harmed. These people also were taken in by the priest's lies and surrendered. As soon as Hudson arrested the emperor's two sons and grandson, by having recourse to a policy and stratagem peculiar to the British, he cast them into chains. As the Shah's two sons and grandson were being taken to Delhi with their hands tied, Hudson had the young princes stripped to their clothes and he martyred them himself by firing bullets into their chests. He drank from their blood. He had the corpses of these young martyrs hung by the fortress gate in order to intimidate the people. The following day, he sent their heads to the British Governor-General, Henry Barnard. Then he had a bowl of soup made from the martyr's flesh and sent it to the Shah and his spouse. Being very hungry, they hastily put some into their mouths. Though they did not know what kind of meat it was, they could not chew it or swallow it. Instead, they vomited and put the soup dishes on the floor. The villain named Hudson said, Why don't you eat it? It is delicious soup. I had it cooked from your son's flesh. In 1858, 1275, Bahadir Shah II was dethroned and was subjected to a judicial trial for the crime of causing rebellion and massacre of Europeans. On March the 29th, he was sentenced to life imprisonment and was banished to Indochina, Rangoon. It was during November of 1862, 1279, that this last sultan of the Islamic Gurgani Empire, Bahadur Shah, passed away in a dungeon far from his country. On the other hand, Alama Muhammad Hartel Haq was martyred by the British in a dungeon on the Andaman Islands in 1861-1278. During the Ottoman-Russian War in 1877-1294, the British declared India a British dependency. By submerging the Ottoman Empire into this war, Midhat Pasha, a registered member of the notorious Scotch Masonic Lodge orchestrated the worst of the damage he had inflicted on the Islamic religion. His having martyred Sultan Abdul Aziz Khan was another favour he did for the British. The British had trained special agents and had them appointed to high-ranking positions in the Ottoman government. These statesmen were Ottoman in name but British in mind and speech. 
Mustafa Rashid Pasha, the most infamous of these men, had been in office as the last Grand Vizier only six days when he congratulated the British for the Delhi massacre they perpetrated on the Muslims of India on the 28th October 1857. Earlier than that, the British had asked permission from the Ottomans to use the Egyptian route for the dispatch of the British soldiers coming from Britain to suppress the Muslims who had revolted against the British cruelty in India. The permission had been provided by the Masonic agents. The British not only prevented the opening of new schools in India, but they also closed all the madrasas and the primary schools, which were the foundations and the most salient symbols of the Akram Islamiyah. And they martyred all the scholars and religious authorities who could have led the people. At this point, we consider it appropriate to relate a real story that a friend of ours told us when he was back from his travels to India and Pakistan in 1971, 1391. After visiting the graves of the Awliya, such as Imam Rabani and others, Qadar Salahu Surah, expression of respect for notable Walis, meaning, May Allahu Ta'ala keep his mystiques concealed and blessed, in Serhan City, I went to Paniput City and thence to Delhi. Performing the Friday prayer in the biggest mosque in Paniput, I went to the Imam's house upon his invitation. On the way, I saw a huge door locked with a chain with thick rings. The inscription on the door said it had been a primary school. I asked the imam why it was locked. The imam said, it's been closed since 1947, 1367. The British provoked the Hindus against the Muslims and caused a massacre of all the Muslims, women, men, children and old people, all of them. This school has been closed since that day. This chain and lock remind us of the British cruelty. We are emigrants who came and settled here afterwards. The British did away with all the Islamic scholars, Islamic books and Islamic schools, practice which they applied to all the Islamic countries. Thus they brought up young generations totally unaware of the religion. The notorious British Lord Macaulay as soon as he arrived in Calcutta in 1834, prohibited all sorts of Arabic and Persian publications and ordered that the ones that were already in the process of printing should be stopped. This attitude of his earned him a great deal of acclamation from his British colleagues. This oppression was assiduously carried on in places with a Muslim majority, especially in Bengal. While closing the Islamic madrasas in India on the one hand, the British opened 165 colleges, eight of which were for girls on the other hand. The students educated in these colleges were brainwashed and were made hostile towards their father's religion, towards their own ancestors. Two-thirds of the British army that perpetrated the aforesaid cruelties and savageries in India was made up of the native people who had been brainwashed, made hostile against their own nation, Christianized or hired. The laws that were enacted in 1833-1249 served the expansion of the missionary activities and the consolidation of the Protestant organization in India. Before this spreading of missionary activities and India's being fully under British domination, British were respectful of the Muslims' religious belief, 
they would have cannons fired to celebrate the Muslims' holy days, offer them help for the restoration of their mosques and other places of worship, and even join services in the pious foundations pertaining to mosques, schools, shrines and madrasas. The imperative messages arriving from Britain in 1833 and 1838 prohibited the British from activities of this sort. As these facts show clearly, the policy employed by the British in their attacks on the Islamic religion is based on deceiving the world's Muslims by first pretending to be friendly and helpful and by spreading the impression far and wide that they love Muslims and serve Islam. And then, after attaining the subsidiary goal, annihilating gradually and insidiously all the Islamic essentials, books, schools and scholars. This double-faced policy of theirs has done the worst harm to Muslims and all but exterminated Islam. Later on, they increased their efforts to have English adopted as the official language and bring up Christianized new generations from the native people. To this end, they opened schools thoroughly under the control of the missionaries. In fact, the British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, and many other British lords said that God had given India to the British so that the Indian people might enjoy the blessings of Christianity. Lord Macaulay spent his utmost energy and support for constituting in India a British nation who were Indian in blood and colour and British in inclinations, thoughts, belief, moral values and mental capacity. Therefore, the schools opened by the missionaries allotted very much importance and time in their curricula to the teaching of the English language and literature and Christianity. Scientific knowledge, such as mathematics, physics, chemistry and so on, was totally disignored. Thus, a number of Christianized people who knew nothing but the English language and literature were educated and produced. Then, these people were employed in the civil service. It being an Islamic rule that a Muslim who abandons his faith will become an apostate, while Hindus considered those who turn away from Hinduism irreligious, people who were Christianized could not inherit property from their parents. In order to eliminate this rule, the missionaries passed a law which was first enacted in Bengal in 1832 and then promulgated all over India in 1850 thus making it possible for the Christianized native apostates and renegades to have a share from their parents' inheritance. For this reason, Indians called the British schools in India satanic registers. In India and in the Ottoman Empire, official bureaus and institutions were called defter, register. French writer Marcel Pambeau visited India in 1925-1344 published a book when he returned. He says in his book of his, Calcutta, India's primary city, was in such a miserable state that the poverty-stricken area around Paris and London would fall far short of exemplifying. People and animals living together in cottages, children crying, ill people moaning. Beside them you see people utterly enervated, drained of vitality, from continuous use of alcohol and drugs, sprawling on the ground in a manner no different from dead people. 
watching these exceedingly hungry, miserable, weak and exhausted people, one cannot help asking oneself what on earth these people could do. Clouds of people are scudding towards factories, and how much of their profits are these factories paying these people? Needs, difficulties, infectious diseases, alcohol and drugs are destroying, annihilating the already enervated, defenseless people. Nowhere else on earth has human life been treated with such shameless indifference as it is here. No work, no toil is considered to be hard or unhealthy here. It is not a problem if a worker dies, another one will take his place. The only concern for the British here is how to increase the production rates and how to earn more and more money. William Jennings Bryan, the former US Foreign Secretary, confirms with evidences that the British government is more cruel and baser than Russia. The statements he makes in his book, British Rule in India, can be paraphrased as follows. The British, who claimed to have bestowed welfare and happiness on the living of the Indian people, sent millions of Indians to their graves. This nation, the British, who boast everywhere that they instituted law courts and disciplinary forces, robbed India to the core through a political embezzlement. Robbery may sound somewhat too tough a term, yet no other word could depict the British atrocity more explicitly. The conscience of the British people who claim to be Christians is not willing to hear the Indian Muslims call for help. Mr. Hotbird Kermton says in his book, Life of the Indian, The Indian is tormented by his master, the British, yet he continues to work and serve till he loses everything he has till he dies. The Indian Muslim workers being employed in the other British colonies were even under worse conditions. In 1834, the British industrialists began to employ Indian workers instead of African natives. Thousands of Muslims were transported from India to South African colonies. The position of these workers, who were called coolies, was worse than that of slaves. They were bound by a contract called indentured labour. According to this contract, the coolie would be indentured for five years. During this period, he could not leave his work or get married. He would have to work day and night under continuous whipping. In addition, he was liable to a taxation of three British gold coins yearly. These facts were announced all over the world through publications such as Labour in India Post-Lecturer in the University of New York. Gandhi, a widely known Indian ruler, received his education in Britain and returned to India. He was the son of a Christianized Indian. In fact, his father was the Archbishop of Porbanda City. When, in 1893-1311, he was sent by a British company in India to South Africa and witnessed the heavy conditions the Indians were being employed under and the barbarous treatment they were being subjected to, he put up a struggle against the British. Although he was the son of a person brought up and even Christianized by the British, he could not bear the sight of this British cruelty and savagery. This was his first step towards the movement that would later earn him his renown. The basis of the policy which the British have followed throughout the Muslim world consists of this three-word slogan. 
break, dominate and destroy their faith. They have not hesitated to fulfil all the requirements of this policy whatsoever. The first thing they did in India was to find the people who would serve them. Using these people, they slowly let the fire of mischief. The people most suitable for this purpose were the Hindus living under Muslims' domination, so they used these people. The Hindus were leading a peaceful life under the equitable ruling of the Muslims, when the British approached them and gradually imbued them with the thought that Hindus were the real owners of India. The Muslims had been killing the Hindu gods in the name of religious sacrifice and that this practice should soon be put an end to. The Hindus were on the British side now. They employed some of them as mercenaries. Thus the Hindu nescience and the British hostility against Islam and avarice for money were brought together to carry out Queen Elizabeth's advice for the formation of an army. Discord was sown between the Muslim governors and the Hindu Maharajas. In the meantime, from amongst the Muslims, people slack in their faith were hired. The British Sir Lord Strachey, who served as the regent on several occasions and who was a member of the Indian organisation, states about the Muslim-Hindu enmity, Anything that will be done in order to dominate or sow discord is compatible with our government's policy. The greater support for our policy in India is the coexistence of two autonomous societies who are hostile to each other. Aggravating this hostility, the British supported the Hindus continuously from 1750-1164 until 1870-1287 and joined them in all the massacres of Muslims they perpetrated. Commencing in 1858, the Muslim-Hindu conflicts grew wider and wider. The British would provoke the Hindus against the Muslims and then sit and enjoy the fights as the Hindus attacked. Not a single year passed without bloody events and mischievous tumults that broke out upon the killing of a cow as a religious sacrifice, which resulted in the massacre of hundreds, nay thousands of Muslims. In order to kindle the mischief from both ends, they on the one hand spread among the Muslims the belief that killing one cow as a sacrifice would be more pious than killing seven sheep, and on the other hand, they rumoured among the Hindus that rescuing their bovine gods from death would earn them a lot of rewards in the next world. This mischief of theirs continued after their withdrawal from India. We would like to exemplify this fact by relating an event written in a magazine entitled Itilla At, which was published in Iran in the time of its Prime Minister, Musadik. On a day of Kurban, Footnote, one of the Muslims' holy days on which they slaughter a sheep, a cow or a camel as a religious sacrifice. Two bearded Muslims wearing turbans and long robes brought a cow to kill as a sacrifice. As they were passing a Hindu quarter on their way home, a Hindu stopped them to ask them what they were going to do with the cow. When they said they were going to kill it as a sacrifice, the Hindu began to shout, Hey people, help! These men are going to sacrifice our God. And the two Muslims also shouted, O oh Muslims, help! These men are going to seize our sacrifice. Hindus and Muslims gathered around the place and began to fight by using sticks and knives. Hundreds of Muslims were killed. 
Later, however, the two people who had been taking the cow through the Hindu quarter were seen disappearing into the British embassy. This comes to mean that this event was provoked by the British. The correspondent who relates this event adds, We know how you spoiled Muslims' day of Kurban. Tricks of this sort and innumerable other types of cruelty, they tried to destroy Muslims. Later on, when they saw that the Hindus were gradually rising against them, they began, by 1870-1287, to support the Muslims against the Hindus. There appeared strange people who bore Muslim names yet who were hostile against the Ahasuna, said that it was not far to make jihad with the sword, said halal about what Islam has prescribed to be haram, and attempted to change Islam's principles of belief. Sir Syed Ahmed, Gurham Ahmed Khentiani, Abdullah Ghaznawi, Ismail Tahrawi, Nazir Hussein Tahrawi, Siddiq Hassan Khan Hehupali, Rashid Ahmed Kenku, Wahid Uzaman Halda Abadi, Ashraf Ali Tahanawi, and Muhammad Ishaq, who was Shah Abdul Aziz's grandson were only a few of these people. Supporting these people, the British caused the appearance of other new sects. They strove to make Muslims follow these sects. The most notorious of these sects was the Qadiyani, which appeared in 1879-1296. Its founder, Ghulam Ahmed, said it was not fard, Islam's commandment, to make jihad, holy war, by means of weaponry and that the jihad which was fard was giving advice. So said the British spy Hemfer to Muhammad of Najd. Ghulam Ahmad was a heretic belonging to the Ismaili group. He died in 1908, 1326. The British hired him for a considerable sum of money. Formerly, he claimed to be a Majadid. Then he promoted his claim to being the promised Mahdi, his next step was to assert that he was Jesus the Messiah. Finally, he announced that he was a prophet and had been revealed a new religion. He called the people he had managed to deceive his ummah, asserted that many ayats had foretold of him and that he displayed more miracles than had any other prophet. He alleged that those who would not believe him were disbelievers. His sect spread among the ignorant people in Punjab and Bombay. The Qadiyani sect is still spreading under the name Ahmadiyya movement in Europe and America. The Sunni Muslims said that it was fard to perform jihad through arms and that it was heresy to serve the British. Muslims who preached or revised this were punished vehemently and most were killed. The Sunni books were gathered and destroyed. Islamic scholars who could not be hired or would not serve the British purposes would be isolated from the Muslim community. They would not be executed lest they should become famous, but they would be given life imprisonment in the notorious dungeons on the Andaman Islands. All the Islamic scholars arrested throughout India on the pretext that they had been collaborating with the rebels during the revolution were sent to the same dungeons. Likewise, when they invaded Istanbul after World War I, they banished the Ottoman pashas and scholars to Malta Island. 
In order that the Muslims should not notice their grudge against Islam, they received fatwas defining India as Dar al-Islam, those countries where Muslims can practice their religion as the ruling sect, and not as Dar al-Hab, those countries not under Islamic rule, and spread these fatwas everywhere. The hypocrites whom they had trained and named scholars propagated the impression that the Ottoman sultans were not caliphs. The caliphate belonged to the Karashis by right, that the Ottoman sultans had taken possession of caliphate by force and therefore should not be obeyed. The Hadith Sharif, the caliphate shall be from the Quraysh tribe, from their descendants, means, if there are Quraysh's, that is, Sayyids, among the people who deserve to be and fulfil the conditions for being the caliphate, you should prefer one of these people. If there is not such a person, someone else should be elected. If a person has not been elected the caliph or has refused to obey the elected caliph and has seized power by using force or violence, this person will have to be obeyed. There can only be one caliph on the earth. All Muslims have to obey him. In order to eradicate religious teachings and demolish Islam from within, they opened a madrasa for the teaching of Islamic knowledge and an Islamic university in Aligarh. In these schools, they educated religious men who were unaware of religion and hostile to Islam. These people caused great harms to Islam. A group of these people were chosen, sent to Britain, trained in such a way as to demolish Islam from within, brought to government positions where they would preside over Muslims. Ayub Khan, who was made Pakistan's president in place of Mjinnah, was one of them. Although the British seemed to have been one of the winners of the Second World War, actually they lost the war. In fact, Britain, a country where the sun never sets, as the British called their land, became a country where the sun never rises after the war. Having lost all its colonies, it was like a plucked hen. Ali Jinnah, who was made Pakistan's president, was a Shiite and a British fan. When he died in 1948, 1367, Ayub Khan, Freemason, seized power by staging a coup d'etat. Also Yahya Khan, who took his disbeliever's place, was a bigoted Shiite. When he was defeated in the war between Pakistan and India in early 1972, 1392, he lost control of eastern Pakistan and was imprisoned. In 1971, Yahya Khan handed the government over to Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who was another British agent educated and trained in Britain. In 1974, the order that he gave for the killing of his adversaries cost him his own execution. Zia ul Haq, who took power by casting out Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, was keen enough to perceive the enemy's plans to destroy Islam and annihilate Muslims. He would not carry out their desires. He endeavoured for his country's improvement in science, technology and arts. Knowing very well that Islam is the only source of welfare and prosperity for individuals, for families, for the society and for the whole nation, he was thinking of making laws compatible with the Akham Islamiyya. He decided to refer this question to his people. A referendum was held and the people voted for the proposal. 
The British villains did their masters another service by assassinating Zia Ulhaq and all his suite. Sometime later, Ali Bhutto's daughter became Prime Minister and set free all the villains who had been imprisoned for various crimes against the state, the people and Islam. She appointed them to high administrative positions. Tumults and conflicts commenced in Pakistan. This state of affairs was what the British desired. After the First and Second World Wars, in many countries people who would carry out the British plans and protect the British interests were brought to high positions by the British. These countries have had their own national anthems, national flags and presidents, yet they had never attained religious freedom. For the last three centuries, any sort of treason committed against Turks and the rest of the Islamic world has had the British plotters at its root. They demolished the Ottoman Empire and established 23 big and small states on its lands. Their purpose in doing this was to hinder Muslims from establishing a powerful and great state. They always instigated hostilities and wars among countries said to be Islamic countries. For instance, they made the 9% Nusairis dominant in Syria, where the Sunnis hold a majority. In 1982, the armed forces attacked the cities Hama and Humus, devastating the two cities and bombing the unarmed defenseless Sunni Muslims. They killed true Sunni scholars, destroyed Islamic books, including copies of Quran al-Karim. In place of these Islamic scholars, they brought religiously ignorant, heretical people they had schooled. Of these people, Jamaluddin Afghani was born in Afghanistan in 1838-1254. He read philosophy books. He spied on Afghanistan for the Russians. He went to Egypt, where he became a Freemason and was appointed as the chief of the Masonic Lodge. Adib Ishaq of Egypt states in his book, Endura, that he was the chief of Cairo Masonic Lodge. It is stated as follows in the 127th page of the book, Des Franco-Messons, which was printed in France in 1960. Jamal Afghani was appointed chief of the Masonic Lodges founded in Egypt, and he was succeeded by Mohammed Abdo. They provided a great deal of help in the spreading of Freemasonry among Muslims. Ali Pasha, a five-time Grand Vizier during the reigns of Sultan Abdul Majid and Sultan Abdul Aziz, was a Freemason affiliated with the British Lodge. He invited Afghani to Istanbul. He gave him some duties. The Times Istanbul University Rector, Hassan Tarsin, who has been declared a heretic through a fatwa, had Afghani deliver speeches. Hassan Tarsin had, in his turn, been trained by the Grand Vizier Mustafa Rashid Pasha, an affiliated member of the British Masonic Lodge. Afghani strove to spread his heretical ideas far and near. Hassan Fahmi Effendi, the Times Sheikh ul Islam, confuted Afghani, proved that he was an ignorant heretic. Hence, Ali Pasha had to expel him from Istanbul. This time he tried to promulgate his ideas of revolution and religious reformation in Egypt. He pretended to support the plotters of Arabi Pasha against the British. He 
he made friends with Muhammad Abdo, who was the Mufti of Egypt in those days. He corrupted him with his ideas of making reforms in Islam. Supported by Masonic lodges, he began to issue a periodical in Paris and London. Then he went to Iran. He would not behave properly there either. Consequently, he was fastened with chains and left somewhere on the Ottoman border. Freed somehow, he went to Baghdad and thence to London, where he wrote articles castigating Iran. Then he went back to Istanbul and used religion as a means for political ends by cooperating with the Baha'is in Iran. The most notorious of the victims who fell for Jamaluddin Afghani's propagations intended to demolish Islam from within under the cloak of a religious man was Muhammad Abdo, born in Egypt in 1849-1265 and died there in 1905-1323. Spending a part of his life in Beirut, he left for Paris where he joined Jamaluddin's Afghani's activities prescribed by Masonic lodges. They began to issue a periodical named Al Urwad Ul Wuthka. Then he came back to Beirut and Egypt, endeavouring to carry out in these places the decisions made by the Paris Masonic Lodge. Backed by the British, he became the Mufti of Cairo and assumed an offensive attitude towards the Ahl as Sunnah. The first step he took in this way was to defile and spoil a curricula in the Jamil Azhar Madrasa thus hindering the teaching of valuable religious law to the younger generation. He had the lessons being taught at the university level abrogated and put into their curricula the teaching of books that were currently being taught in the secondary level. Stripping the schools of their capacity as places of knowledge on the one hand, he on the other hand reviled the Islamic scholars, pledged that these scholars hindered the teaching of scientific knowledge claimed that he would enrich Islam by adding this knowledge to it. He wrote a book entitled Islam and Christianity, which he says, All religions are the same. They are different only in their outward appearance. Jews, Christians and Muslims should support one another. In a letter he wrote to a priest in London, he says, I hope to see the two great religions Islam and Christianity hand in hand, embracing each other. Then the Torah and the Bible and the Quran will become books supporting one another, being read everywhere and respected by every nation. He adds that he is looking forward to seeing Muslims read the Torah and the Bible. In his Tafsir explanation of Quran al-Karim, which he wrote in cooperation with Shaltut, the director of Jamil Azhar, he gives the fatwa stating that bank interest is permissible. Later on, fearing that this might incur the wrath of Muslims, he pretended to have withdrawn from this opinion. Hanna Abu Rashid, president of the Masonic Lodges in Beirut, makes the following acknowledgement in the 197th page of his book, Daira Tumariv ul Masonia, which he published in 1961. 1381. Jamal Afghani was the chief of the Masonic Lodge in Egypt. The lodge had nearly 300 members, most of them were scholars and statesmen. After him, Muhammad Abdo, the Imam, the master, became the chief. Abdo was a prominent Freemason. 
No one could deny the fact that he promoted the Masonic spirit all over the Arabic countries. Another most notorious disbeliever whom the British propagate as an Islamic scholar all over India is Sir Syed Ahmed Khan. He was born in Delhi in 1818, 1234. His father had migrated to India during the reign of Akbar Shah. In 1837, he began to work as a secretary for his paternal uncle, a judge at a British law court in Delhi. He was made a judge in 1841 and was promoted to a higher judgeship in 1855. Another so-called religious man educated by the British in India is Hamidullah. He was born in 1908-1326 in Hyderabad, where the Ismaili group were the majority. He was brought up in the Ismaili group and therefore as a fanatical adversary of the Ahl-Sunnah. He is a member of the research institution called CNRS in Paris. He strives to introduce Muhammad as the prophet for Muslims only. In their war to annihilate Islam, the most effective weapon the British used for deceiving Muslims that were zealous for serving their country and nation was the method of propagating that Islam should be adapted to time modernized and restored to its original purity, which again was intended to establish an irreligious society. The Sheikh al-Uslam Mustafa Sabri Effendi, a great Islamic scholar, was one of the people who perceived this very well. By stating, to abrogate the madhabs means to build a bridge leading to irreligiousness, he elucidated what their real purposes were. The British and the other enemies of Islam endeavoured to corrupt the places of religious devotion and paths of Tasawwuf. They strove hard to annihilate ikhlas, sincere piousness, quality, intention or state of, doing everything only for Rahu Tala's sake, which is the third component of the Akham Islamiyya. The superior leaders of Tasawwuf never busied themselves with politics nor would they expect any worldly advantages from anybody. Most of these great people were profoundly learned mujtahids. The tasawwuf means to follow the way guided by Muhammad, alayhi salam. In other words, it means to strictly observe the Akham Islamiyya in whatever one says or does, in everything. However, for a long time, ignorant sinful people and even foreign agents, in order to attain their vile goals, have instituted diverse guilds by using the names of great men of Tasawwuf, and thus caused the Islamic religion and its Akham Islamiyya to collapse, to deteriorate. Dikhir, for example, means to remember Allah Ta'ala. This is essentially the heart's business. Dikhir purifies the heart of any sort of love except that of Allah Ta'ala such as love of the world or of other creatures, and thus love of Allah Ta'ala settles firmly in the heart. It is not dhikr for a number of people, men and women, to come together and articulate some strange sounds in the name of dhikr. The way followed by those superior men of religion, by the Sahabad al-Kiram, has already been forgotten. Ahmed ibn Taymiyyah, a heretic without a certain madhab, and an enemy of Tasawwuf, 
was declared an Islamic scholar. A new sect, namely Wahhabism, was established to follow in his wake. With British support and through Wahhabi centers, they founded the world over and called Rabita Tulul Alam il Islami. Books spreading Wahhabism were published in all countries. The huge buildings that they constructed in every country were hung with signs saying Ibni Taimiya Madrasa, a mixture of the heretical ideas in Ibn Tamiya's books and the lies by the British spy named Hemfer was called Wahhabism. Scholars of Al-As-Sunnah, true Muslims, wrote many books informing that Ibn Tamiya's books are heretical. One of these books is entitled Amakalat Usunniya Fikhashki Dalalat i Ahmed Ibn Tamiya by Sheikh Abdur Rahman Abdullah bin Muhammad Hari, a Somalian scholar. That scholar was born in Harar, Somalia, in Ethiopia as of today, in 1920-1339. His book was printed and published in Beirut in 1994-1414. The book provides a detailed account of the scholars who refuted Ibn Tamiya and also the valuable books written by those scholars. Enmity against Hasawuf is the common villainy of all the heretical sects called Wahhabism, Lamadhibism, Reformism, Salafia, Qadiyani movement, Mordudism, and Tabli Jamaa, all of which were established and organized by British plotters. Enemies of Islam, particularly the British, employed all sorts of methods to retard Muslims in science and technology. Muslims were hampered from trade and arts. Atrocities such as alcoholic spirits, indecencies, revels and gambling were encouraged and popularized in order to spoil the beautiful moral qualities existent in Islamic countries and to annihilate Islamic civilizations. Greek, Armenian and other non-Muslim women were employed as agents for depraving people. Young girls were lured into losing their chastity by means of resplendent decoys, such as fashion houses, dance courses and schools for training models and actresses. Muslim parents still do have very much to do in this respect. They have to be wide awake so as not to let their children fall into the traps set by these impious people. Towards its declining years, the Ottoman Empire sent students and statesmen to Europe. Some of these students and statesmen were persuaded into joining Masonic lodges. Those who were to learn science and technology were taught techniques for demolishing Islam and the Ottoman Empire. Of these people who did the greatest harm to the Empire and to Muslims was Mustafa Rashid Pasha. His stay in London was entirely appropriated to disciplining him as an avowed and insidious enemy of Islam. He cooperated with the Scottish Masonic Lodges. When Sultan Mahmud Khan took heed of Mustafa Rashid Pasha's treacherous acts and ordered that he be executed, it was too late because the Sultan's remainder of his lifetime was not long enough for him to have his order carried out. After the Sultan's passing away, Mustafa Rashid Pasha and his colleagues returned to Istanbul did Islam and Muslims the severest harm they had ever suffered. Abdul Majid Khan, who became the Padishah in 1839-1255, was in his 18th year yet.
he was too young and quite inexperienced, nor was he warned by any of the scholars around him. It was this state that caused the deplorable turning point in the Ottoman history and ultimately caused the dissolution of this great Islamic state. The gullible, pure-hearted young emperor fell for the cajolery of the British, the formidable and insidious enemies of Islam, and appointed the ignoramuses trained by the Scottish Masons to administrative positions. He was too immature to sense their policy of demolishing the state from within, and there was no one to caution him. Lord Raiding, a cunning member of the Scottish Masonic Organisation, which had been established in Britain with a view to demolishing Islam, was sent to Istanbul as the British ambassador. With blandishing statements such as, If you would appoint this cultured and successful vizier as Grand Vizier, all the disagreements between the British Empire and your great empire would be solved, and the great Ottoman Empire would make progress in economic, social and military areas he managed to persuade the caliph. As soon as Rashid Pasha took possession of the position of Grand Vizier in 1846-1262, he began to open Masonic lodges in large cities, using as a basis for his move the so-called Law of Tanzimat, reorganisation, which he had prepared in coordination with Lord Radcliffe as he was Foreign Minister in 1837-1253, and officially promulgated in 1839-1255. Centres of espionage and treason began to function. Young people were educated without any religious knowledge. Following the plans dictated from London, they, on the one hand, executed administrative, agricultural, military reorganisations, thus using these activities to mislead, and, on the other hand, began to devastate Islamic morality, love of ancestors and national unity. Training agents suitable for their purposes, they located these people in important administrative positions. In those years, Europe was taking gigantic strides in physics and chemistry. New discoveries and improvements were being made large factories, technical universities and production of modern warfare equipment was being established. All these renovations were being neglected by the Ottomans. On the contrary, subjects such as science, arithmetic, geometry and astronomy, which had been in the curricula of the madrasa system since the reign of Fati, Muhammad the Conqueror of Istanbul, were abrogated once and for all. Thus, the education of scientifically learned scholars was hampered under the sophistry that men of religion would not need scientific knowledge. Then, enemies of Islam who came afterwards and tried to estrange Muslim children from Islam by saying that men of religion do not know science, therefore they are ignorant, backward people. Whatever was harmful to Islam and Muslims would be called modern and progressive each law passed would be against the state. Turks, the true owners of the country, would be treated as second-class citizens. Whereas Muslims who would fail to do their military service would find very high amounts of money which were beyond their ability to pay, the non-Muslims would have to pay very insignificant fines for the same offence. While the real children of this country were being martyred in the wars contrived by the British, 
the country's industries and trades were gradually being transferred into the hands of non-Muslims and Freemasons as a result of the intrigues carried out by Rashid Pasha and his Masonic henchmen. Alleging that the Russian Tsar Nicholas I was provoking the Orthodox community in Jerusalem against the Catholics, the British urged the Emperor of France Bonaparte III, who was already nervous about any probable Russian power in the Mediterranean, into joining the Crimean War between the Turks and the Russians. This cooperation, which was actually intended for the British interests, was presented to the Turkish people as a result of Rashid Pasha's diplomatic accomplishments. It was the Sultan himself, again, who was first to take notice of these destructive strategies which the enemies were striving to conceal under falsely adorned advertisements and the ostentation of a counterfeit friendship. He felt such bitter remorse that from time to time he would shut himself up in his private section in the palace and sob bitterly. He would desperately search for ways of fighting against these enemies gnawing at the country and the people, and deploringly beseech Allah for help. Therefore, he dismissed Rashid Pasha from the office of Grand Vizier several times, yet each time this foxy man, who had appropriated for himself such nicknames as Grand and Great, somehow managed to overthrow his rivals and resume his position. Unfortunately, the deep feeling of distress and remorse the Sultan had been suffering developed into tuberculosis, which in turn put an early end to the young emperor's life. What remained for Mustafa Rashid Pasha to do in the years to come was to make sure that all sorts of administrative positions, university fellowships and law court presidencies be shared among his disciples only. And he did so too. Thus, he paved the way for a period called the khat i scarcity of competent men in Ottoman history, and caused the Ottoman Empire to be called the sick man. Omer Aksu, the professor of economics, says in his article published on January the 22nd, 1989, issue of the Daily Tukia newspaper, the 1839 Tanzimat Furman Reorganization Decree has been shown as the starting point of our movement of westernization. So far, we do not appear to have understood the fact that what we should borrow from the West is technology. Culture, on the other hand, should remain national. We have looked on westernization as adoption of Christianity. The trade agreement that Mustafa Rashid Pasha made with the British was the severest blow on our efforts of industrialization. Scottish Masonic lodges carried over their domination in the Ottoman Empire. Hardishars were martyred. Whatever would have been useful for the country and the nation was objected to. Rebellions and revolutions broke out one after another. Who waged the most die-hard struggle against these traitors was Sultan Abdul Hamid Khan II. May his abode be paradise. They therefore announced him to be the Red Sultan. Sultan Abdul Hamid improved the empire economically, opened very many schools and universities and developed the country. He had a medical faculty built. This school did not have an equal in Europe with the exception of the one in Vienna. A faculty of political sciences was constructed in 1876-1293. He 
He founded a faculty of law and the audit department in 1880-1297. He instituted an engineering department and a boarding high school for girls in 1884-1301. He had water from the Terkos Lake conveyed to Istanbul. He had a school for silkworm breeding opened in Bursa and a school for agriculture and veterinary medicine established in Halkala. He had a paper factory built at Hamidiye, a coal gas factory established at Kadikoy, and constructed a wharf for the Beirut harbour. He had the Ottoman Insurance Company instituted. He had coal mines opened in Eregli and Zonguldar. He had an insane asylum established, a hospital called Hamidiye Etfel, built at Sishli, and instituted the Darul Ajezze, home for poor, homeless and handicapped. He formed the most powerful army of the world in his time. He had the old and obsolete ships towed into the Golden Horn and reinforced the fleet with high-quality cruisers and battleships newly made in Europe. He had Istanbul, Eskishihir, Ankara, Eskishihir, Adana, Baghdad and Adana, Damascus, Medina railways built. Thus, the world's longest railway network was in the Ottoman country in those days. These works of Abdul Hamid Khan, may his abode be paradise, have survived to our time. People who travel by train today will see with pride that all the train stations throughout Turkey are the same ones built during the reign of Abdul Hamid Khan. Jews, supported and encouraged by the British, were planning to establish a Jewish state in Palestinian territory. Abdul Hamid Khan, who was wise to their Zionistic activities and aspirations, and therefore was quite aware of the Jewish threat in the region, advised the Palestinians not to sell the land of Palestine to Jews. Theodore Herzl, leader of the Universal Zionist Organization, taking Rabbi Moshe Leve with him, visited Sultan Abdul Hamid and requested that Jews be sold land. The Sultan's answer was this, I would not give you a tiniest piece of land even if all the world states came to me and poured in front of me all worldly treasures. This land, which cost our ancestors their lives and which has been preserved until today, is not saleable. Upon this, the Jews cooperated with a party called Ittihad, the Teraki, Union and Progress. All the evil forces on the earth united against the Sultan, eventually dethroning him and orphaning all Muslims in 1909-1327. The leaders of the Union and Progress Party filled the highest positions of the state with enemies of the religion and Freemasons. In fact, Hairi and Musa Kazim, whom they appointed as Sheikh ul-Islam respectively, were Freemasons. They made the country bloody all over. In the Balkan, Chanakare, Dardanelle, Russian and Palestinian wars, which were actually caused by British henchmen, the world's biggest armed force founded by Abdul Hamid Khan was annihilated through treacherous and base plans. They martyred hundreds of thousands of innocent youngsters and proved their own perfidious characters by fleeing the country at a time when the country needed unity and protection more than at any other time. 
our non-Muslim compatriots who had been seduced in the missionary schools opened in the Ottoman Empire and in churches were provoked to rise against the Ottoman administration. The black-caped spies who were sent forth under such names as teachers for schools and priests for churches and the so-called newspaper correspondents took money, weapons and instigation with them wherever they went. Great rebellions broke out. The massacres perpetrated by Armenians, Bulgarians and Greeks still occupy the pages of history as stains representing human cruelty. It was the British again who brought the Greeks to Izmir. Allahu Ta'ala showed mercy to the Turkish nation so that they were able to defend this beautiful country of ours at the end of a great struggle for independence. When the Ottoman Empire collapsed, the whole world was suffused with a state of utter chaos. The Ottoman Empire had been serving as a buffer between states. It was a protector for Muslims and a deterrent to war between disbelievers. After Sultan Abdul Hamid Khan, there was no more comfort or peace left in any country. Nor did bloodbaths and massacres ever come to an end in Europe, whose states first entered the First World War then underwent the Second World War, and then were crushed under a communist invasion and cruelty. Those nations who had collaborated with the British and attacked the Ottomans from behind were now in such a miserable state that it appeared as if they were never going to enjoy peace again. They were so penitent for their wrongdoing that they began to have the Kutbah performed in the name of the Ottoman Caliph again. Finally, an Israel state was established in Palestine by the British, it became obvious how valuable the Ottoman existence had been. The savageries the Palestinians had been suffering under the Israelite cruelty are being reported in newspapers and shown on television programs world over. Egyptian Foreign Minister Ahmed Ismet Abdul Majid made the following statement in 1990. Egypt lived its most comfortable and peaceful days in the time of the Ottomans. Christian missionaries appear to have been indispensable in places where Europe's Christian countries and America have had interests. These missionaries are hunters of advantages and spoilers of peace hidden behind the simulation of offering service, peace and love to Isa, Jesus, Alayhi Salam, whom they divinize, May Allah Allah protect us against such heresy. Their more important task is to make the countries they have been assigned dependent on Christian countries. Missionaries learn precisely the languages, customs and traditions of the countries they are going to go to. As soon as they begin their mission in a country, they study its political status, military power, geographical position, economic level and religious structure to the tiniest details, and report their findings to the Christian governments they are working for. Wherever they go, they find people to collaborate with and hire these people. While still bearing names identical with those of the native people, these people are now either Christianized ignoramuses or hired traitors. A candidate missionary is trained either in the country where he is to carry on his mission or by another missionary trained in that country. 
Missionary activities increased in the aftermath of the Gulhani Furman, prepared and proclaimed by Rashid Pasha, the Freemason. Colleges were opened in the most beautiful places of Anatolia. Furad College, Euphrates College, was opened in Harput in 1859-1276. No degree of expense was deemed too much in building this school. In the meantime, missionaries established 62 centres on the plain of Harput, and 21 churches were built. Missionary organisations were instituted in 62 of the 66 Armenian villages. One church was constructed for every three villages. All the Armenians, regardless of what age, were antagonised against the Ottomans. Female missionaries spared no effort to train Armenian women and girls for this purpose. The notorious woman missionary Maria A. West wrote the following explanation in her book, Romance of Mission, which she published afterwards. We penetrated the souls of the Armenians. We carried out a revolution in their lives. This activity was conducted in any place with an Armenian population. Antep College in Gaziantep, Anadolu College in Merzifon, and Robert College in Istanbul are only a few examples. The Merzifon College, for instance, did not have any Turkish students. Of its 135 students, 108 were Armenians, and 27 were local Greeks. These students were boarders collected from all parts of Anatolia. The director was a priest, like in the others. In the meantime, a kind of boiling motion began in Anatolia. Militants from the clandestine Armenian society ruthlessly killed Muslims and burned Muslim villages, recognising no right to live for the Ottomans, who were the guards, the owners of the country. The Armenians were pursued and an operation of retaliation and repression was executed in 1893-1311 whereupon it was found out that the militants were camouflaged in that college and planned all their activities there, and that their chieftains were two college teachers named Kayayan and Tumayan. Upon this, the missionaries raised a universal clamour. In order to save the two villainous Armenians, great public demonstrations were arranged in America and England. Strange to say, this event was a cause of discord between Britain and the Ottoman Empire. And what is even more strange is that when the demonstrations arranged by the British missionaries were held in 1893, the director of the Merzifon Anadolu College was in London, and among the demonstrators too. The massacre of Muslims in Anatolia, which were perpetrated by Christians, were later reflected in the books of Christian writers in totally the opposite way. One of these lies is written in Marash chapter of Arabic dictionary Al-Munjid, a book prepared in Beirut. In 1893, three million copies of the Bible and four million other Christian books were distributed by missionaries to the Armenians in Turkey. Accordingly, Every one of the Armenians, including the newly-born babies, was given seven books. The amount of money spent yearly by the American missionaries alone was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. To elucidate how great an amount this money was, 
we would like to state that 1,728 gigantic schools like the Mezifong Anadolu College could have been constructed by an equal expenditure. It would be sheer credulity to think that it was religious zeal that motivated the missionaries to dispense with this stupendous sum of money. For religion is a trade in the eyes of missionaries. This amount of money, which the missionaries spent in Anatolia for the purpose of demolishing Islam and extirpating the Ottoman nation, was a tiny fraction of the money they had collected through propagations that Turks are massacring Armenians, let us help them. It was around the same years when Greeks in Athens and Yenishihir, incited by the missionaries in colleges and churches and tremendous support by armed forces from Britain, revolted and widely massacred hundreds of thousands of Muslims, children and women alike. This rebellion was quelled by forces under Edham Pasha's command in 1895-1313. This was a victory which was achieved not only against the Greek forces, but also against the British, the real inciters. Britain is governed by three authorities. The King, Parliament and the Church, that is Westminster. Up until the year 1512-918, the Parliament and the King's Palace was within Westminster. After the conflagration in 1512, the King moved to Buckingham Palace, Parliament and the Church remained under the same roof. In Britain, the Church and the State are interlaced. Kings and Queens are crowned by the Archbishop in Church. According to a report called Social Inclinations and published by the British Central Bureau of Statistics, out of every hundred babies born in Britain, 23 are born as a result of illegitimate relations. According to a statistical report announced by the British Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard, and published in an Istanbul daily newspaper dated May 7, 1990, there is no longer security of life in London, which has become a very dangerous city, particularly for women. According to the British police reports, in the last 12 years there has been an increase in all sorts of offences, mainly rapes and robberies. Family, in all countries and religions, is an institution formed by a man and a woman who have come together in a legitimate way. On the other hand, British laws have legitimised and protected two men's practising homosexual acts. It is stated in a report headed Scandal in the British Army, which appeared in a daily Istanbul newspaper dated November 12, 1987, that the newly enlisted Lance Corporals in the Guards Regiment belonging to Queen Elizabeth II were sexually harassed and were subjected to sadistic torture. In a research article published in the December 28, 1990 issue of the Daily Tukie, it is reported that the rate of homosexuals in British churches has reached 15%, and their number in the Houses of Lords and Commons is even higher. Indecencies have spread out to the Parliament and scandals like Profumo have erupted. Britain is the first European country where homosexuals formed an organisation. Even in places where such indecencies are practised, 
British hostility against Islam is quite conspicuous. The back streets of London, where adultery, pederasty, and all the other sorts of indecencies are committed, are painted green, a colour Islam holds sacred, and tablets depicting Mecca hang on the doors of these dens of abhorrence. According to a report published in the British daily newspaper Guardian, 200,000 girls resorted to law courts and asked for protection against their fathers, who had been harassing them sexually since they had reached the age of puberty. According to the BBC, on the other hand, the number of those who did not resort to law courts, though having been subjected to the same abominable treatment, is estimated to be around 5 million. With respect to land shares, Britain has the most inequitable system world over. The ceaseless struggles waged by British peasants against lords are recorded in history. It is a fact that even today 80% of British land is possessed by a privileged minority. It is written in the May 31, 1992 Sunday edition of Tukie, Unemployment and poverty, which was caused by economic depression, increases the suicides in England. It was reported in the British medical periodical that a study which was carried out by two doctors from Oxford Hospital showed that every year 100,000 people commit suicide. 4,500 of them died. Of them, 62% were young girls. No other state as treacherous, aggressive and wild as the British who martyred hundreds of thousands of Muslims with their jets, bombs and missiles every year and who had led hundreds of thousands of their own people to commit suicide has been witnessed. Ireland, on the other hand, has become a nuisance to Britain. We hope that we shall all live up to see those happy days when they will fall into the traps they have set for us. In order to bless ourselves with the blessed name Syed Abdul Hakim Awasi, Ramatul Ali Aleh, we would like to end the second section of our book with his following statements, which define the British in a way covering all the main points while leaving out any points that are not relevant. The British are the greatest enemies of Islam. Let us compare Islam to a tree. Other disbelievers will fell this tree by cutting it at the lowest point of its trunk whenever they have the opportunity. Consequently, Muslims will begin feeling hostility towards them. Yet this tree may send forth roots some day. British policy, on the other hand, is quite different. He will serve this tree, he will feed it. So Muslims will develop a liking for him. However, one night, when all the people are sound asleep, he will administer poison to its root without anyone noticing it. The tree will dry up for good and will never sprout again. He will go on duping Muslims by expressing his solidarity with them. This exemplification of poisoning represents the British stratagem of extirpating Islamic scholars, Islamic literature and Islamic learning through the hypocritical and ignoble natives he has hired in return for the appeasement of sensuous desires, such as money, rank, positions and women. 
May Allah protect all Muslims against all sorts of evil. May he protect statesmen, Islamic scholars and all Muslims from falling for the deceit and tricks of missionaries and the British and from serving them.